Hello. Welcome back to Building Sustainability. This is episode number four. Uh, this month it is hosted by an exhausted Jeffrey Hart. Uh, exhausted and elated. So Hartwin have been the main contractor for a an RHS, a Royal Horticultural Society, Shogun, um, working with the very talented Jess Makins, Jessica Makins Garden Design. Um, she had designed a a garden which featured natural materials, lots of clay. And over the last two weeks, we have been working well. Sixteen-hour days were were common. It has been immensely hard work, but uh, the 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 quality and um, what we've managed to do in that time has been really fantastic. Um, so just just today. Uh, we finished and we were judged and uh, I just heard that we won a gold medal. Um, the The area we were working in is called the Green Living Spaces um, and with that you get a, a six by six plot. Uh, half of that is an indoor space and half of that is an outdoor space. So Jess had designed a space which is for uh, an artist studio. So the idea is it's maybe an artist studio at the bottom of a garden or something like that. Somewhere where uh, you know, an artist might reside. They'd get up and they'd be inspired by, by things around them, whether that's objects or planting or shadows or textures. Um, and Jess designed this exceptionally well. Her planting is kind of a, a black and white garden. So all the blooms are either dark, dark, dark colours or very light um the stems of the plants are either very very light or very very dark so it's it's, it's a very textual monochrome garden she designed this space um and we were there to uh, essentially we we turned up with a lot of mud and um and we slapped it all over the place um one of the the festival organizers came up and said to me uh, at one point ah oh, you're doing what you love you're you're mixing mud again <laughs> and uh and that really was um what i did for for two weeks in the internal space we put down a an earth floor so that's clay and sand and straw laid flat and then uh it's sealed with linseed oil um we clay plastered the inside of the the space um and then outside we built a a clay block wall uh, and then rendered that with a a clay render again and then built this kind of built-in seat with the clay blocks again so the other part of the studio was something that jess coordinated exquisitely which was um she got together a whole collection of makers um so little independent makers who are making sustainable products and decorated the inside of this artist studio with their their products so we had uh simon who's a local ceramicist um beck prior who is 
she makes these beautiful geometric uh lamps um from reclaimed woods um who else do we have oh there's so many people um imogen who is a weaver and has woven this this beautiful uh rug and uh, sorry a, th- a throw um the happy sheep company who are they 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 care for uh sheep and keep them in very humane conditions before you know making uh rugs out of their their fur and steph tudor who is a bristol based sculptor and she created a lovely piece made of a an old water tank that um pieces of of grass or foliage can can protrude from and it really creates this beautiful um texture and and the the shadows it creates is you know, really quite stunning and the the final person i i say the final person i feel like in my utter exhaustion i've forgotten some people but i'll i'll in the the show notes do check out the the pictures we're posting up and uh all the links to the the makers but the the final person i can think of right now is uh dave cockcroft and dave is a spoon maker and chair maker and he gave us a uh, a welsh stick chair and the welsh stick chair sat in the middle of the artist studio and uh was you know the the artist's seat when they were they were drawing at their easel and it just so happens that dave is this month's podcast guest so that segues nicely into this episode sorry that was a a bit of a um a bit of a 10 minute rant on uh the thing that has been occupying my life you can obviously tell that it's it's really uh taken over but let's focus focus now on on this month's episode so Dave Cockcroft is a spoon maker and chair maker, um, formerly in IT, I believe, a sort of boring office job. And he talks to me a lot about, well, actually, first of all, we get straight into a little bit of tool geekery and uh, go off on an instant tangent about... Um, edge tools and and dave's quite stunning collection of of tools in his shed where the interview took place uh we talk the mindfulness of spoon carving um we talk how we got into it we talk a little bit about spoon fest uh spoon fest is something i'm fairly loath to talk about uh in a good way i guess it's a, a little festival uh run by barn the spoon who also gets a mention in this podcast and uh i think it's 250 people who get together and carve spoons and this year the ticket sold out in 15 minutes and the uh the 15 minutes <laughs> in question were when i was uh running to get some sand some emergency sand to build this show garden so i am a little sad that i don't have a ticket and if you are listening to this and you do have a ticket and you don't think you can make it 
I would absolutely love you to sell me your ticket and I will send you spoons. Um, <laughs> that's a little beg that's over with now. Um, anyway, Dave, what else did we talk about with Dave? We talked about the sort of idea of occupying your mind, um, how doing a sort of repetitive task can can sort of free up your mind and is is really beneficial we talked a little bit about men's sheds uh what they are we talk a little bit about how craft and having other people's craft in your life connects you to them we also talk a little bit about chairs and about technical details um we also talk about kind of heritage and styles and where that's all evolved from during this podcast, we talk a lot about uh, makers, and I will put a link to all of their their Instagrams on the website on the uh, the show notes for this one. I think that's about all for me. Sorry, this has been a super waffly intro. Um, as I say, I am exhausted. I'm just going to cut this and uh, go to bed because too much. <laughs> anyway, um I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Hello. Dave. Nice to see you. Yes, likewise. Thank you very much for, for agreeing to be on the podcast. Um, it's, yeah, it's uh, very nice to come and see your, your home and your... Yeah, yeah, I live in this little shed. It's, yeah, so uh, for the, the benefit of the listeners, we are sat uh, in Dave's shed at the bottom of his garden. Uh, shed? Workshop? Shed? Workshop, I suppose. Yeah. It is a shed, but it's full of things for making things. Yeah, and so tool cupboard is open and the benches are covered with work in progress and wood chips the floor, on the floor is covered with shavings. <laughs> That's about how it goes. There's never enough space to put things down. No, absolutely. My uh, my workshop is exactly the same. And I've got the 
the luxury of being able to go up high, but now I'm going up oh, really right. high. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, an enviable collection of hand tools you've got. I especially was just playing with your uh, uh, little spoke shaves. The oh yes, Veritas ones. Yes, they're very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I over the years you collect things. I have a few favourite tools. I think draw knives are my favourite. I've got a couple of really beautiful draw knives that I use a lot. Yeah. And I try and get as close as I can to finish with the chair making. Yeah. With a draw knife. Mm. And I use spoke shaves minimally. Uh huh. So is it is the sort of traditional use? Is it that a, a you draw knife first and then spoke shave for for final? Or is that? Yeah. Yeah. You got. In theory, there's more control with a with a, um, a spoke shave. You can take finer shavings, right? But because most of my work, right from spoons and tiny scoops up through to chairs and even tables when I mm-hmm. do them, is all essentially carved. I think a draw knife is much more of a carving tool mm. than a spoke shave, right? So, so the difference being. Um, you as the operator are much more in control or, or you can make much greater errors. Yeah. <laughs> You're much more in control <laughs> with controlling what the carving tool is doing. Yeah. Once you go to a plane or a spoke shave, essentially the tool is a jig yeah. and holds the cutting edge rather than relying on your own skill. Mm-hmm. And there's still, you know, skillful ways to use those tools. Yeah. But the more pure the edge tool, as in a carving knife or a draw knife, uh-huh. yeah, the more you, it's your, which we want to talk about more, is, is your tactile sense, your your sense of touch. Sure. And the feel of the tool in the wood, the feedback you get is greater. Mm. And the finishes I leave on all my work uh-huh. are essentially carved finishes. Yes. That's, yeah, something I definitely want to talk about. Talk mm-hmm. about a bit more, but we've we've sort of gone straight into oh, tool, right, yeah. tool geekery without <laughs> okay. uh, maybe giving. A... We've lost everyone already. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. I didn't tune in for a tool podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, so maybe uh, you could give us a, an overview of. Uh, well, I haven't even said your your full name. So it's your well the hard ones first. Aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm Dave Cockcroft, or uh, Dave the Bodger online. Okay, and and what is it that you well, uh, what is it that you do? What's a bodger? Okay, well, bodgers um, are green woodworkers. Specifically, they were the the fellows on the whole um, back hundred years or so, one hundred and fifty years ago. Who used to buy stands of trees. Um, and then because you had no mechanical means of extracting trees from the woods, they used to go in every day and make chair parts in the woods. So they were pole lathe turners, the mm-hmm. Rogers specifically, and uh, lived most or worked, you know, in and around London, particularly in the Chilterns. Oh, right. That's my um, neck of the woods. And that's where Rogers were. Mm. And then it's, so people might, be confused the term to bodge I know. a bodge I job know. now it, we're trying to rehabilitate the term yes because it's become to mean like yeah you've you've like a half-assed job isn't it yeah, so yeah sort of thrown together but yeah. no it specifically refers to those very highly skilled artisans 
Um, and it's just quite a nice word. Some people think I'm Dave the Badger. Yeah, that <laughs> well, that's, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think, well, certainly someone once told me uh, at a Green Woodworking show that they felt that the Bodgers were sort of renowned for being able to turn anything from any any bit of wood. And maybe that was where the, the ter- how it got sort of transitioned into bodging because you could do it with anything and therefore it's a bodge uh, job i i think do you think that's... well you, you you can google this stuff i mean I, there's lots of different possible ways there were similar words and yeah. i don't think there's one uh sort of derivation of or, or one mutation of how the word got changed into meaning sure yeah you know it, maybe it was a word that that has multiple meanings that was always used in different ways. Yeah, I don't know, but the, the yeah, it's it just kind of a talking point, really, because you, people say, yeah, "Doesn't that mean you you just sort of um, you know you're not doing very good quality work?" And then yeah. you can tell the story about the bodgers in the woods, these guys who did piecemeal work and worked really fast to a very high standard. Mm. Um, you know a skill you have to aspire to um so your so your main work is chairs is yeah. that what you would say your... uh, yeah my main passion is chairs i spend probably more time on spoons and spoon related things in truth mm-hmm. uh, mainly because that's what i teach Right. And the teaching takes quite a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And spoons, spoon carving. What's... Spoon carving. Well, spoon like... carving has become a thing recently that mm. a lot of people want to do. Um, I really got into doing green woodwork about 10 years ago. And I was making some chairs. And then... Sometimes I'm away from the workshop and I still want to do a bit of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see nice little bits of branches on trees and and when we've been on holiday and things. So spoon carving was a very portable craft. Right. You need, you know, a small number of tools. Yeah, quite portable tools. Very portable. Um, and it's something that you can do when you're out camping or yeah. or away. It's the I see even something, something I do quite a lot is 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 i'll go for a walk and i'll take my knife with me and uh, a roughed out spoon and i'll find somewhere nice to sit it became a sort of a meditative practice for me uh, i've i've seen some of your your instagram posts of you sat on a, a cliff overlooking yeah. the sea with a, like you know, a newly finished spoon. That's right. there's something really calm mm. and meditative mindful it's a mindful practice as yes. well. it's a mindful practice uh it's one of the things so when i'm teaching it's one of the things that always comes up when you get to a point where i've shown people how, you know, how, to, how to safely carve and it's a bit later on in the morning and suddenly everything's been quiet for 10 minutes and everything's mm-hmm. been really focused and we call it entering the spoon zone <laughs> and then suddenly somebody goes this is really therapeutic, isn't it? And then, of course, the spell's got broken yeah. by that first... <laughs> Recognising the thing that's happening. No. <laughs> Spotting what was going on. And I tried that, that run of this funny thing that goes on in courses where you're aware... Uh, I have to, you know, watch out for any 
one who's likely to cut themselves. Yes. Yeah. But I let some stuff go in order to get these quiet periods because I think the experience of that is really important. Yeah. I will interrupt if I see anything that's looking particularly mm-hmm. hazardous. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and I was originally, I suppose one of the big influences was meeting Barn, Barnaby Carter, Barn the Spoon, mm-hmm. uh, on the first big chair making course I did when I was learning to make chairs. Right. Was that? Down with Tim Gatfield, Cherrywood Project. Okay, near, yeah. Near, uh, just north of Bath. Yeah, not far from me. Yeah. Fantastic setup. Mm-hmm. Another person you might want to go and talk to. Absolutely. Um, both Barn and Tim. But um, Barn, Barn's been a little uh, evasive of my <laughs> messages. Has I think, he? I think oh. he's one of the, not because of... Because uh, <laughs> everyone wants to talk to him. Uh, yeah, and he's a busy man, isn't he? Like, he's got a lot going on. Barely pretends he is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, what are we talking about? We, so, so it just happened that Barn back in his, his in the day, probably 10 years ago, um, was assisting, was living in the woods there mm-hmm. for a period and, and was helping on the courses. So I was you know, given this little introduction to spoon culture was back he... in the early days of Barn, when he was being a, a wandering around yeah. the place, carving for his living. Was well, He was Barn the Spoon at that point. He wasn't he Barn was the Barn chair the assistant. Or... Yeah, well, that week he was. This <laughs> Barn the stick maker. <laughs> Barn the stick. Um, and what was it about spoons that, that you know, inspired you to, you know, 10 years later still be... Still be making them. The great thing about spoons is they're really difficult. <laughs> right. So you don't kind of get bored of them. Mm. Um, they are at once this very simple everyday object. But also making good spoons is hard. Mm. And um, there's infinite subtle variations yeah spoons can be all different sizes for all different uses yeah um and there's great community with it as well now so i'd say one of the big things through craft work and social media has helped with this mm. but also things like spoon fest yeah and in terms of chair making the bodger's ball so the associate we so, should maybe uh, elaborate on Spoonfest, but uh, we'll come back we to that. We can talk to those two events. Yeah. And maybe some others. But but, but there are times when, um, yeah, you get gatherings of people who have become passionate mm. about these crafts. And there's this sense that there's a resurgence in wood. Yeah. Greenwood crafts. Definitely. From yeah, chair making and bowl turning and spoon carving and all kinds of making with pieces of, of, of timber. Bowl bowl turning seems to be sort of hot on the heels of uh, spoons at the moment. Uh, yeah. I uh, I did a course with uh, Jared Dahl mm-hmm. um, and he said, oh, yeah, bowls will never be uh, as popular as spoons because you have to have all this custom kit. And then loads of people started making mm. hooks for uh, for bowl turning. 
and suddenly, yeah, it seems like it's it's the thing. Well, everyone wants to have a go. Um, personally, I think it's too difficult. I just let the bowl turn and work <laughs> out and do it. Um, I am planning to start carving bowls because mm-hmm. my all my stuff is carved. I'm going to carve them, not yeah. turn them. That's your your thing. Yeah. So even uh, chair components, they're all carved. Everything's carved. Nice. Everything is, yeah, uh, you know, shave or straw knife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit more fiddly when you get to have to make round yeah. sections. But but nearly all my pieces, like you see um, up on the bench here, is the bottom half of a Welsh stick chair. And those are all octagonal section mm-hmm. in terms of all the pieces there. That's a very, very beautiful thing. Is that oak on the legs? That's all oak. Is that? It's actually oak seat as well, that one. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, let's not go into stick chairs right now. (laughs) I'll talk about stick chairs and and the democratic chair and things a little bit later. I think it's a good thing. We'll talk more about chairs. Okay, definitely. We're on spoons, though. Let's go spoons. Um... So what you were saying about those those gatherings, uh, so I yeah. attended my first Spoonfest two years ago, maybe longer ago, and it was it was a life-changing uh, event for me. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you know, the coming together of, of lots of weird and wonderful people, um, all with this sort of focus on, on making, you know, bits of stick, push food around and put it in your face, was first of all very wonderful but then also the culture around it the the storytelling and the singing and you know the just the whole the whole event left me feeling very very sort of warm and and like it was a uh, a thing that would be missing from my life and probably from from uh, sort of society um and it's something i know you've talked about before uh, the idea of uh, do nothing sticks Mm. Would you like to, to sort of yeah. talk, talk? Well, okay. So, do nothing sticks. <laughs> uh, partly things for practising um, your carving. They, they were a thing people would sit around the campfire and just make shavings. Mm. Um, but also then they might carve little grooves around the spoon around the stick or or a ball on the end or something and it's a way of keeping your hands busy and i think for me um i tell you that the thing i talked about earlier about uh the purity of of carving with an edge tool Mm -hmm. that feedback you get from the wood and and the feel of of the knife or the draw knife whatever yeah so my hands are happy when they're doing something i think i've always been a fiddler yeah I mean, I, you know, even when I used to have a, a proper job and work in offices and things, I was quite well known for producing the most incredibly elaborate doodle, doodles, <laughs> doodles, doodles, you know, where you, where you just randomly sketch things during meetings. Mm-hmm. I would sit in boring meetings and my whole blotter pad or, or notepad was covered with these crazy pictures. Afterwards, you've got to say, you didn't take any notes, but look what you drew. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't sit there with my hands doing nothing. I just can't. Mm-hmm. So, so the do nothing stick is like when you're doing nothing and just sat chatting with people. Yeah, and it's very similar. So, so other crafts, say, so crochet and knitting, mm. have become big movements now. Yeah, and they're the same. There's the local pub here as as a knit and natter evening on Tuesday evenings. Brilliant. 
and the big table down the end <clears> of the pub and about a dozen people turn up and and it's a social they chat and they knit and it's doing that thing with your hands sort of frees up your brain but also yeah uh, and i think it's like brain gym actually right because I, I do think there's, there's a massive you see like when people get animated and they're talking they wave their hands around mm. and gesticulate but that's because there's an absolutely massive amount of neural connections between your hands and your brain right yeah and and essentially you know we are tool making and tool using animals yeah that's one of the big differentiators of of us from other critters mm. and modern consumer western culture the way you know a lot of people unfortunately lead their lives now your hands don't get enough to do mm. you know cooking for example using a knife to prep food not many people are still prepping food from raw yeah not regularly you might now and again which is great but some people even don't do that mm -hmm. it's all packet meals and microwaves so you've reduced your hands this incredibly important you know fundamental tool these attachments you've got that make you human mm. you reduce them to button pushing screen poking yeah. devices swiping swipers <laughs> and and um that tactile process of using tools in a natural material or knitting needles on wool or mm -hmm. whatever is incredibly therapeutic. And I think, um, yeah, that's why it's a mindful practice as well. It calms you because your hands are happy again. Yeah. And you're They're doing you're what you evolved to do, <laughs> not not just poking TV controllers with your thumb. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, that sort of yeah. You're concentrating enough so that you're you're doing it right, but it's sort of it's like meditation, isn't it? It frees up maybe like the back of your brain, or it would probably be the left or the right. I'm really down with uh, that sort of knowledge, but uh, yeah. It's sort of freeing up something by concentrating on something, and you can do good thinking. And it's, um, I think, did you say that maybe in the past it had been used as a, a sort of uh, like this the Swedish gentleman's way of uh, sort of talking honestly about feelings? Uh, oh, well, possibly, you know. I, I don't know for sure. I mean, I think one, one could imagine, yeah, that, um. Yeah, you but don't have I'm, to look anyone in the eye as you as you're no, carving your spoon. Which, you can... uh, yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, that that intensity you get where you're looking at someone mm -hmm. is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, one of the movements I'm I'm really like um, is the men's shed. Yes, movement. So we'll go tangential on that at the moment. There's a workshop space over in Nailsworth, just down the road from here, where mm -hmm. I'm actually running my courses this weekend, that runs a men's shed. It's a community workshop, and Tuesdays is men's shed. Uh, but men's shed, for those who don't know about it, is uh, this space where um, usually older chaps um, who are maybe now alone mm -hmm. can gather 
and do things with tools. They might have their own tools. They might be, you know, people who who haven't talked a lot, socialised a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know my, really my uncle, was he? So he was a relative, Gordon, I think, was very lacking in social skills after his, his, his wife died. Right. Um, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm struggling to remember his name. It wasn't Gordon. It was the other one. Anyway, um, but he would have benefited from men's shed. Mm-hmm. And it's a chance. And then when you're just going there and you think you're just going to woodwork, you do start talking. Yeah. You do natter to other people. And then the other thing men should do, then then younger people come in as well and learn skills off the older guys and yeah. get a chance to talk and interact. And inevitably, some of that is then talking about your personal circumstance, mm-hmm. not just about what you're doing. Yeah, so the youngsters are getting a, a sort of yeah. older, wiser perspective on it. Mm. And, and learning and, some skills. and Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. The, the place in Nailsworth, uh, they've got all the, the guitars around yes. the wall, haven't they? Yeah, well, they, they they make musical instruments quite a lot there. Fantastic. What a, That's what Gavin does, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. I, yeah, I'm very much into that. <laughs> oh, of course, you came, of course you did, came yes. on with there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I should maybe have said that I'm also a, a spoon carver and I've um, yeah been doing it for a some years and uh and dave runs a a more what would you call it a sort of improvers mm. is that yeah we do courses for beginners which i run very regularly and then courses for people who are then you know carving independently and want to get better mm. we'll be back after a quick break hey there i'm mick from the mick and pat show That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, so talking about a lot more of the sort of nuanced details yeah. and you know, the the things that might be well design and and tactility and hmm. is tactility a word? Well, ergonomics. <laughs> yes, no, well, tactility is quite important. Yeah, which I think is the feel of the spoon is what yeah. you're talking about. Both the feel if it's an eating spoon, feel in your mouth, and mm-hmm. the feel for your fingers. Again, we're talking about having something that feels nice to touch. Yeah. Your phrase uh, has stuck with me a lot, where you said uh, the top of the spoon, um, there needs to be some texture or something to be breakfast for your thumb uh, <laughs> while you're yeah. you know, putting your, your muesli in your face. Yeah. Um, yeah, that stuck with me a lot. And it's something I really um, sort of focus on. And I think that's uh, it's good. I haven't seen too many other than at Spoonfest, too many of those kind of more advanced courses. Um, and I come from a background of, well, for five years, I was a snowboard instructor and I'd get frustrated that people wouldn't, they'd have their initial lessons and then yeah. they go, well, I can snowboard. Okay. And off they went and, you know, you'd see them on, on the slopes. Not, you know, they're managing it and yeah. I'm, they're having a great time, but, you know, there's uh, sort of blockages within their movements, which stop them like fully, you know, excelling. Okay. 
And uh, so I always found it quite frustrating. So to to find your course, I was there in a, in a, a flash. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I shall run some more later in the year. It's a hard one to pitch and know that the people come in. The last one I did, which wasn't when you came on, it was a more recent one. Um, I had a very mixed range of abilities. Right. So the better people didn't get maybe as much out of it mm. as I wanted to give because I had to give more attention to one or two who were struggling more. Yeah. And it's very hard to assess that people have the level. Yes. Yeah, I suppose. Anyway. So the things that, you know, if you are carving, learn to carve, things like spoon clubs, mm-hmm. which are starting to grow up, and we <laughs> have a spoon club. Um which again you'll see on my Instagram and things. Get in mm, touch. So Gloucestershire and friends. So at, at Dave the Bodger is it? At Dave the Bodger. Um. And that runs first Sunday of each month, and that's a chance to gather with other people who are regular or occasional spoon carvers, but know how to carve. Mm-hmm. And just by being in that kind of grouping, not only do you get a bit of social nattering gossip and stuff but you do pick up skills off other people it's a skill share you know you can look at their stuff they've made and talk about it and talk about the areas but these things you find difficult and then um there's a few of us there who are quite experienced carvers and we might occasionally help people mm-hmm. but it's not really a thing where we're teaching no that's the idea of a spoon club it's not a, it's not a course mm-hmm. so i don't have to do a lot of planning and prep i can just turn up and enjoy it myself as well yeah put the kettle on put the kettle on bring some wood have a natter yeah no it's great i um so i met uh a few of the bristol carvers by coming mm. to your your spoon club and yeah it's opened up it's all these sort of connections that, yeah. that open up um you know making better friends and you know from people you see occasionally but also as you said like that sort of tips you might pick up yeah. i saw um will is this Priestley, is that yeah. yeah uh he i saw how he had finished like the axe work mm. and it's so smooth and so beautiful and so that's been something i've been thinking about in my mm-hmm. my work yeah is you know how much further can i take the axe to a as a you know, kind of Creating a, a surface that's nearly there. Indirect learning from just exactly. that's the that's the the thing to do. Friendship and learning and yeah. mindfulness practice all in one. <laughs> just by making spoons. Just by making spoons. The wonderful <laughs> world of spoons. So <laughs> So what have we got here, Dave? We on again? Yeah. All right. Uh, This is my very tatty box with very beautiful spoons in. This is my spoon collection, uh, which really ought to be in a much nicer box, but I never get around to making one. (laughs) Uh, So these are are spoons, a few of which I've bought, but mostly spoons I've swapped with people. Um, And something very lovely... Uh, in in knowing who they who made them, mm. you have this thing with craft, especially if you know the person. 
that even if you know a bit of their story, it's sort of very special. Uh, it gives you a connection yeah. to that person. Mm-hmm. It's not only is it a beautiful object, but the object has meaning yeah. because it represents a friendship to some degree. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard work. So recently, let's say I want to mention, I've been trying to acquire pieces by uh, female Mm-hmm. by women uh, makers because uh, there's more women making now and I notice on my courses I get beginners courses I get as many women as men mm-hmm. but in terms of people who carry on it seems like more men carry on yeah than women for various reasons uh, so I think encouraging what are people who are, who have started carving mm-hmm. and what I'm noticing I think is that the women are more creative mm. and are doing different things. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that, I mean, I'm, like <laughs> the handle on that one is really unusual. That's Marianne. Um, we'll, uh, we'll take some photos of these and, uh, okay. and get them on the on blog. Um, and that's the sushi one. That's, that's when she's quite well known. That's Anya. Yeah. Uh, but she was doing very different creative stuff and making toys and all kinds of things. That's what she teaches. Um, then I've got some stuff up at the house. There was others. They've seemed to have disappeared at the moment. <laughs> but I bought bowl recently and, um, oh, Lucy's spoons. Lucy's really good and she is fairly local. And hasn't been carving very long, but he's doing extraordinary work. Right. So I'm just, yeah, trying to trying to have items by certain people. Whereas blokes seem to go off down this perfecting um, particular forms, the forms of, of the other carvers they admire. Yeah. They're more imitators. More say. imitators. Mm. See? So this is perhaps... I mean, some people do very, you know, do innovate... Um, have you seen the work of, um, what's her name? Is it Ink Lampshade or something like that? Uh, I just found her on Instagram. Right. And she's I doing lots have. of cool rossing of little uh, birds on the handles. Oh, okay. And yeah. Well, some good. people just do extraordinary work really quickly. Um, and I think it helps chorus in things if you're really arty and control. Mm. I can't draw very well. Well, and <laughs> these are these are sculpture, aren't they? So, yeah, they're sculpture. So, you know, I mean. Yeah, understanding the sort of form and then uh, the other really favorite maker of mine is um uh, is carol ah yes who does ones like that and just gets insects to decorate the spoon for him <laughs> <laughs> she's cheating but it's very clever and beautiful so using the natural surfaces the spoon we're looking at the moment has uh, a handle that was from directly under the bark where insects have been yeah, grubs have nibbled it. It's but a, it's made a really beautiful handle. <laughs> yeah, one that you couldn't replicate. It's too no, you couldn't make one like that. Nature made it. So mm. I think there's enormous creativity and options that haven't been explored yet in 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 spoons. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a huge adventure still happening. It's uh, I think a lot of people who don't uh, aren't in the spoon world. Uh, would see it as quite a limited uh, thing. And, you know, the question that's always asked is, when are you going to do forks or uh, sporks, even worse? Uh, you know, 
and you know surely you've completed spoons now uh but i very much see it as um like learning a musical instrument yes you know i would i would say it's a very good analogy it's analogy i use in teaching quite a lot is that uh, when people come on a spoon course sometimes an expectation that you can just can't just do it. It's yeah. a simple everything. Well, yes, you can just play lay an instrument, can't you? You know. Yeah. You you blow into it and put your fingers on holes and it makes a noise. Yeah. That's it. You've got an instrument and you're playing Beethoven. <laughs> and you can't. Okay, for all kinds of reasons. Mm. Um. So yeah, there's lots and lots of levels in which you can play music. You know, you can play chopsticks on the piano, mm-hmm. or you can learn to read music and practice your scales and play to a higher level. Mm-hmm. And then once you become really proficient, there's a lot more subtle levels of, you know, interpretation of the music mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, you get onto finer things. And and same with the musical instrument, people who are very attuned to it can recognise particular players yeah. just by listening us who are very into spoons can recognise <laughs> particular makers. So just seeing that box there, I, I saw a random hawker. Yeah. Uh, I think I saw a little tiny uh, bit of a bowl, which I assumed to be Alex uh, Yeah. Yes. That sort of it's devil horny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, it's a, yeah, it's like a signature. It's sort yeah. of a unique there's things people yeah. do. So, so yeah, the musical instrument analogy, you know, to get, you can get, you can learn the basics, mm-hmm. then you have to practice a lot, make a lot of mistakes, and then it becomes more natural. Yeah, and then you can, you know, or even say learning art, learning to be proficient, uh, a really good drawer. Mm. You can learn the basics, and then the basics of making more different kinds of marks and seeing light and representing the form, and then you can do imitative work, and then you can do your own. Mm-hmm. You know, those are those are more the analogies. It, and, and it's a process, it's something you never finish. Yeah, you'd never complete no. music, do you? No. <laughs> never complete music. <laughs> so you never complete, uh, yeah, making these little functional sculptures. And that's, yeah, that's what they are. Beautiful little bits of 3D, mm. 3D artwork. So now we'll look at one more. So these are little scoops, what I make. You've seen these before, I think, haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah. Um, so these are coffee scoops? Coffee scoops with a painted finish, mm-hmm. um, which makes them almost ceramic on the outside. Yeah. Uh, people find, people just like them. People just, sometimes people buy spoons and I get messages back from them saying, I got your spoon and um, I've not used it yet, but I've been cuddling it all as I watch the telly. <laughs> I've just been fiddling with it. Yeah. And it's this tactile thing again. I think if you want a theme out of all this, it's it's this doing stuff with your hands. Yeah. And fiddling with these objects. And and your fingers love the stuff. Yeah. They love the natural I mean, material I, and the feel. And... My fingers are just yeah, so all let's over talk this. about innovative things. See, sometimes I play around. That's a playful spoon. Mm-hmm. So that has got uh There was a knot. There was a knot. Right in the middle of, right uh, in the, middle the, handle. of the handle. So you would normally throw that bit of wood away. But yep. I made it uh, a, a, a feature and yep. 
Um, I think it came out rather nice, actually. Yeah. That's <laughs> beautiful. Someone's going to find the perfect use for that as well. Mm-hmm. Something's going to fit in there. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So this um, this uh, scoop that I'm holding, is this milk paint? That's milk paint. And what is milk paint? So milk paint is a traditional finish. Um, it's a paint made from milk. Um pigment mm-hmm. and a little bit of something to create alkalinity so lime okay like limestone lime or like slaked lime okay building lime aha uh-huh. um so what happens is that milk in alkaline environments the casein mm-hmm. turns casein is, is the protein mm-hmm. in the milk turns into a glue essentially yeah um and it then is, is the binder in the paint so you get a paint that basically adheres very, very strongly onto wood. Yeah. And it doesn't wash off. Um, it's very durable. It will, over time, depending on its use, it will um, distress yes. in a very lovely kind of way. It's used a lot. Um, it was used a lot for painting furniture in, in back in the days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's used a lot by furniture restoration stuff, people who are doing... Um, what do you call it? Not upscaling, is it? Up, cycling. Upcycling. Mm. Scruffy old furniture. Um, yeah, it's got a beautiful sort of matteness to it, or it's all—it's not quite matte, is it? It's more like um, what do they call it? Satin. satin, satin yeah. Type finish, yeah. Um, and this, uh, so I happen to know the the process of of you making these. Um, uh-huh. This is a sanded finish. In the end, yeah. So, so the so outside, you... so what we've done to this, and this was again tips I picked up off furniture bakers. It's a, it, there was the original ones I did, I did at Spoonfest a few years ago, just an experiment because mm-hmm. I had some fairly boring looking spoons and I thought, what can I do? Um, and I had my paints with me because I do painted finishes on some chairs, and particularly American Windsors are quite often painted mm-hmm. and they use milk paints. So I've been experimenting with milk paints. And you, you do multiple layers. So the, the first ones I did had a layer of red um, with a layer of black over. Mm-hmm. And then you use a fine abrasive or wire wool just to rub back and it reveals the high points. Mm, so you get the a depth lines. of colour. You and... get a depth of colour. Um, and everyone called those lava spoons. The red kind of glowed through the black. Right. And I didn't call them. They people called them lava spoons. So then I became known for making lava spoons. I made a lot of those. And I still do that red and black finish, um, particularly on these little scoops now. And, yeah. And then I was only doing red and black, and then I had a request from someone about could I do a different colour, and she wanted the blue and white, so mm-hmm. we did those. And, yeah, they became very popular. Yeah. Very popular, particularly with the ladies. <laughs> that right. sounds awful. That sexist stereotyping shouldn't really be a thing. Um, but when I've sold at markets and shows and things, mm. it's as a lot of the blue and white ones are sold to women. Huh. It catches the eye in some different kind of way. And I don't know. I don't push them that way. 
yeah. just happens. <laughs> just, just what you've observed. Yeah. So Jane, who who first requested that, is my colour consultant now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So this, I mean, I, I will again post pictures, but the. They're yeah. just a thing, aren't they? I mean, I've while Dave's been talking, I've I've had this rolling around in my fingers, uh, and yeah, I can't can't get enough of it. It's um, and what I think, you know, it does one job. It gets coffee from yeah. from a pot from one pot into another pot. Um, yeah, could scoop other things, but I think the thing is, again, this is this notion of having crafted, handcrafted objects that you use. Is a special thing. These aren't just decorative objects. No. Um, and there's something. These are like little caddy spoons. They sit in your coffee jar. And every morning when you go to make your coffee and you open it up, instead of picking up a little dull plasticky object, mm-hmm. that you suddenly no, no feelings. You suddenly have this little moment of delight in your life where, mm-hmm. where this beautiful handcrafted object has some meaning to you. Yeah. Yeah? is in your hand and you're using it even for a few seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. And there's something really different about, um, Oh goodness. We, we used to, to, um, we talk about gardening now. Mm-hmm. Right? Go for it. So being involved in, in, in the process of making or the process of growing transforms the everyday object so we grew potatoes used to grow potatoes a bit um and uh involve the kids mm-hmm. in that process and it went for any food but the first time we had baked potatoes out potatoes we'd grown yeah they'd seen them growing they were the best baked potatoes ever <laughs> And the same, you know, I mean, homegrown food is just delicious. Yeah. The tomatoes we grow in the greenhouse are the best tomatoes. Um, But partly they're the best because you did it Mm -hmm. and you nurtured it and you fiddled with it and you looked after it. It's your hard work and love. Yes. And then you harvested it and cleaned it and prepped it and cooked it. And it's different then. Mm. You've put layers of meaning into thing and you can taste that mm. <laughs> and that's yeah completely missing you don't feel the uh the feeling of the you know the big machinery that processed uh no. the, the the store-bought potatoes no. and no. uh but again if you buy yeah. from a farmer's market and and you had a conversation mm. with the grower the food you get then has another layer of meaning another thing that you know it probably will have a a quality and a taste inherent to it but the story that's attached to it Mm. is very important it's um yeah so to bring it back to to sort of you know handmade items it's um i feel so i've got various bowls and spoons and Mm. you know by different people and it's something that I'm trying to you know, make sort of exclusive in my, my life. I don't want the mass produced things mm. just because of that, that feeling and that 
you know, connection. Like, you know, I can take down a spoon made by made made by you. I've got one of your spoons, and you know, it's sort of like it in a weird, not creepy way. It's sort of like having you there with me while I'm eating my breakfast. That's uh, it's, no, it's, it's, it is. It's a bit like that. It does re remind you of that connection you have with mm. that person. Yeah, and I, you know, maybe I wouldn't have contacted you to to come and do this podcast if I didn't have that spoon and you know yeah. it's making me think about you and yeah, it's a nice thing. It's oh, a very nice thing. And as I mentioned before, that I've been buying one or two things recently. So one of the, you know, there's pros and cons of social media. One of the nice things about social media is you get to see stuff other people are making. Yeah, and sometimes you go, God, I really like that. So I just bought a bowl off of um, Amy Leak wood mongler mm-hmm. and it looked absolutely stunning yeah she posted it and i just went i've got i want that and now i know as she said it's gonna be a little while so it's a little while because i hadn't been oiled or something and and, and then she messaged me saying no oh, it's going to be in the post so i'm quite excited now looking forward to having that Ooh, so it's thing. not arrived yet it's not arrived yet oh. it's that anticipation as well today could be the day yeah yeah yeah. so here's someone you've known for a few years who you see their work progressing yeah and then it's nice to support them and have a lovely thing for yourself yeah yeah there's so many layers of uh, of why that's a good thing yeah should we chat chairs? Let's chat chairs. Um, okay, so the, I am making these days a particular style of chair called a Welsh stick chair. And that's what this one beside us is. This one beside us is the bottom half of a Welsh stick chair, and then most of the top bits are in the drying cabinet over there. Oh no, that's the arm, the top arm up the top there. Oh, right. The oak arm. Is that. Steam bent, or is that? Uh, no, that's a, um, a different. That's a compound arm. So those mm. pieces are, are, are sawn and assembled. Cut, oh, I see. Cut the, and glued together. You can probably yeah. just see the joint. Mm-hmm. And then I'll shape that. Um, so what? Various reasons for that. So th- there was um, there's a, a maker who is dead now, who was quite well known, a guy, a guy called John Brown, uh-huh. who wrote a very lovely little book about, which is my favourite chair book, called Welsh Stick Chairs. It's uh-huh. a very minimal book. There it is. And it's actually unique in chair-making books because it has it's more philosophy right. than how to do it. Yeah. There's no measurements or instructions and he eyeballs everything. Yeah. And um, John wrote a column for one of the big woodworking magazines uh, that was very well thought of and respected. And he was one of the first people back in the 80s and 90s, 1980s and 1990s, uh, who wrote about returning to the use of hand tools mm. and the pleasure of hand tools. And that was the philosophy. Um and that very much was my sense of making, making with a lot of feel for what you're doing, mm-hmm. not having machines involved. Yeah. Um, and not actually 
making that accurately. I mean, mm. I do have sliding bevels and angle measures and things. Yeah. But essentially, I, I, I do it by eyeballing, which means just looking at stuff. Yeah. And I make a lot of design decisions as I'm making. And I've never made from plans as such. Mm. I have a notebook. That See that red book over there? Yep. With spoons on it. Mm-hmm. That's my, like, recipe book for chairs. Right. So I make notes in there of the angles I've used and and the side distances and the spacings and things Mm -hmm. what's working for you and then i'll look at a chair after i've done it and i'll think like next time i make it i'm going to pull that in by a degree okay i'm going to move that position a little bit it doesn't mean what i've made but so so things evolve yeah yeah so the other thing was no two of john's chairs were ever the same Mm -hmm. no two of my chairs ever the same they'll have similar form well even if you built them to the same even if it was in the same plan, they wouldn't be the yeah, same. Exactly. But, but I'm kind of not doing that because sometimes, you know, we're working with with a sensitivity to the timber we're using, mm-hmm. partly. And sometimes you think he doesn't really want to do that. I go and get a bit of wood that's exactly right, or I can actually. So this chair we're looking at here is made. Um, it's going to have a lower back than I normally make, and that's mm-hmm. because it's made from offcuts from a table that I made. Right. It was the leftover pieces, and I was going to use them for stool tops, and then I realised there was just enough there to squeeze a chair out of it. Brilliant. And um, I'm quite fortunate to be in contact now with with a, another chair maker, uh, a chap called Chris Williams, who makes Welsh stick mm. chairs, who worked with John Brown uh-huh. for 10 years or so before John died. Um, and Chris wasn't quite John's apprentice, but he absorbed a lot of yeah. John Brown quality um, and and learned a lot from John, but possibly also taught John some things. And Chris had, was a, a carpenter previously. Right. Before he started chair making. And now he's a furniture restorer and a chair maker. Um, and uh, he's writing a book about John Brown at the moment. So Lost Art Press, mm-hmm. Chris Williams' work, yeah, which is a really interesting. If you're interested in craft, yeah. check out Lost Art Press as a publishing house. Great. Um, and they have a range of fantastic um, craft books about lost arts, mm. lost crafts, or, or yeah, how you... So some of it, the really interesting books about um, how artisans uh, made beautiful furniture in the days before accurate measuring devices. Right. For example. Mm-hmm. And it's all about learning about ratios, and they use dividers to mm. set proportion. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so there's a lot of knowledge gradually to be to be absorbed in all of that. Anyway, so I go see Chris when I'm over in Wales, um, and I have this kind of link with Wales. We've always holidayed over there, um, and then I like John Brown's stuff. And then we are actually I spend quite a lot of time in Wales because I have a cottage. Very lucky to have a cottage over there. So when I'm over there, I go and see Chris. And we have natters about chairs. And a bit like I was talking about learning spoon stuff, I learn, not directly, Mm -hmm. but 
sort of you absorb stuff when you're with someone else who's got the knowledge. Mm. And it might not be. And it influences you. So one of the big learnings um, about Welsh stick chairs, one of the things about them was historically they predate Windsor chairs. They were country chairs. They were made by everyday it, out in the villages in the country. Yeah. They were never mass produced. They were made by people who had a few tools and a few bits of wood. They might be made by the wheelwright mm-hmm. when you didn't have wheels to make or the coffin maker or another right. carpenter in the village. So they're very much a natural democratic chair. They're made out of the bits of timber you've got mm-hmm. yeah, with the tools you've got. Yeah. And it's make them with a relatively small tool set. You don't need lots of fancy stuff. Yeah. And um, a lot of the old ones had very thick seats because they date from a period where sawn timber was a rarity. Mm. So they were used, using cleft timber. Yeah. And they might be three inches thick, some of the cleft slabs. And they might be left really rough underneath because who cares about the underneath of the seat? You're not sitting on the yeah. other side. Yeah. And the top quite often very flat because they didn't have anything to, to make a more comfortable seat. But uh, very often the form was defined by the arm and the arm would be a naturally curved piece of wood. So in old Welsh stick chairs, there are no bent arms, no bent components. Right. Because they weren't doing steam bending. Um, so sometimes an arm would be made up out of several pieces. Mm-hmm. But if possible, you'd get a piece of hedgerow with a big bend in it. Yeah. Or a piece of naturally curved tree branch, but actually those are rarer than hedgerow, um, and that would form the arm, and then the seat would be cut to match the arm, and right. then sticks would be used to hold the arm up above the seat, and that's why they were stick chairs. Because uh-huh. I mean, it, it's it's a form called stacked furniture where the yeah you drill holes with big augers into a lump of wood, and 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 you fit sticks into it it's a very simple form yeah but done right it's a very beautiful very live form and i feel particularly english windsors lost a lot of their um their vibrancy their animal quality because they changed this form i mean you see the one we're looking at here the legs, particularly on the front, have a lot of splay. On the, the Windsor chair? Or the, on, on this one. This one, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whereas on Windsor's, English Windsor's, the legs gradually went much more upright right. on the front. And there's various practical reasons, but mainly it was because they were imitating posh imported furniture. Right. Yeah. So the conventional, more conventional chair makers, rather than the people making it in this style, had cabriole legs in the corners. Mm-hmm. And so the Windsor makers gradually moved outside because people wanted to be like the posh people. Yeah. They didn't want these country chairs where, for engineering reasons, you put the legs well into the seat. Yeah. So there's less chance of it cracking out. So this is a, a much more honest chair then. It's, uh... I feel that, yeah. Yeah. And there's this, this you know, an, an accessible for people to, you know, try and make. Yeah. Um, so I think with Chris's book coming out in a in a year or so, uh, it takes a long time for these things to actually finalise. Of course, yeah. There'll be a bit more interest. And um, I'm thinking about maybe running chair building courses, but I would do very simple chairs using this kind of methodology. Mm-hmm. Well, when you do, uh, if you do, 
if it interested. I'll, I'll be first on the list. I've, uh, I was sat on a plastic chair in my studio the other day carving a spoon and I just thought, what I need is to make myself a chair. A chair. You do. That would, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, just whenever you're ready. <laughs> yeah. So, so I suppose, you know, the chairs for me provide this, we're talking about layers of meaning earlier, weren't we? So there's all this stuff about my links to, so my heritage, my long go heritage isn't Welsh, it's Cornish. Right. All right. But go back far enough and the Welsh and the Cornish and Brittany and Ireland and the West Coast of Scotland were mm. all very intimately connected. The language was very similar. Yeah. There was a lot of trade. So the West of Britain is a heritage I want to claim, mm -hmm. which includes Wales. So though I'm not Welsh as such. And there are actually a few instances of West Country country chairs mm -hmm. that are quite similar to these. There's some right. differences. So that's I mean, nice. Wales is where I spend time at the moment. Wales is where I've got the contacts. Wales, Welsh stick chairs were a known thing. But I might go on a hunt for some more of the West Country chairs that are similar at some point um, and have a little look at the differences. And mm. and work out the sort of evolution of it, where where things have... <coughs> Maybe yeah, I suspect there were the chairs of this sort of form made. I mean, in, in terms of the, the the structure and this greater splay on the legs, you still see that yeah. more on American Windsors, mm. although they're turned and have very fancy legs and things on them. That kind of form, that engineering form, exists more in American Windsors, and it's thought that this older style of chairs, as people emigrated to the States. They took with it the knowledge of building this kind of form. Mm. And then the English Windsors kind of evolved, influenced by French furniture and stuff. Yeah. And the form changed somewhat. Um, whereas the American is closer to the, you know, this form we're looking at here predates that. Yeah. So there's this hence a, a sense of a, a connection to a longer past yeah, I mean, it's almost <clears> a, <throat> a family tree, isn't it? Of, yeah. Of changes yeah. and... And I'm sure there are chair historians who dispute all of that. <laughs> More than one interpretation of history exists at all times. <laughs> ah. um, great. Well, I think I've got probably one one last question. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the basis of this uh, podcast is really about sort of how we can use maybe the past to inform our, our look on sustainability going forwards. Right. And I think we've we've probably talked quite a lot about you know being more connected with things yeah. and you know the the many benefits in a sort of permaculture way of, of you know getting together and, and talking. But is there anything kind of specific that that you feel uh that you know these these crafts can can teach us and to mm. And to help us. Yeah. Um, I think of this as the stuff that reconnects us. Mm. That connects us back to being more human. Um, and what I mean by that, I think there's a whole set of things uh, that when you do it, it feels like you've always done it. So 
working natural materials with your hands sits into that category for mm-hmm. me. Using simple tools. But other stuff like sitting around a campfire is the same. Yeah. Sitting around a campfire and talking in the dark is something humans have done for an extremely long time and something a lot of people don't get to experience. Singing in a group, Mm. singing while you work, are things humans always did. Um, You know, some of the stuff like tracking. You don't have to actually be going to kill someone, but you try and follow the trail of something. Mm. Is very primal. And all of these things, I mean, you know, bivying, being out in nature overnight. Mm-hmm. Camping, Does know, bivying just mean sort of without a shelter? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hence the bivy bag, which is sort yeah. of a, a big bin bag, really, isn't it? Yeah, a bit more breathable than a bin bag. <laughs> <laughs> Ideally. The, the it keep, it'll keep the dew off you, I yeah. think, so you stay a degree of comfort. Yeah. But sleep, you could sleep out without anything. You tend to get a bit chilly in early morning, you have to get up early. Um, yeah, so, so, so there's aspects of music and aspects of art and making art. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, and cooking and collective eating, cooking feasts and eating together. You know, the, the whole bunch of those sort of things that mm. are about building connections and building community and getting in touch with your deep self. Yeah. So I think getting your hands in the soil and growing. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all important things. They're all important, I think, for both our, our mental and physical health. Yeah. And they're things that our culture, our modern consumerist culture, has pushed us further and further away from. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of a renaissance happening. We're living in what people call an experience economy, more and more. It's a phrase I've come across recently. Right. um, Where people are wanting to do craft courses. Mm. And it might only be a percentage of the population at the moment, but I think that's growing. I think there's more interest and more demand um, and more young people. You can argue that, you know, the story... You go to school, you keep your head down, you be a good boy or girl, you get education, you get a nice job, then you're able to buy a house, have a family. That, mm-hmm. that kind of cultural story yeah. is broken now because you can't necessarily get a job and you can't afford a house and you can't do that yeah. thing. Yeah, certainly. And that's causing more people to reevaluate and... and uh, um, Get their hands dirty, I suppose. Use your hands, is my message. There's a lot of pleasure in it. Excellent. Well, that seems like the perfect (laughs) summary. Thank you very much, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So massive thanks to Dave for coming on the podcast and having such a wonderful chat. Also, thank you to Dave for supplying the wonderful Welsh stick chair for the uh, RHS Malvern show. If you are listening to this, or if you happen to be listening to this uh, before the 10th of May, uh, the 10th, 11th, 12th is the RHS Malvern show. Do come down and see the green living spaces. Uh, you'll see me there and Jess. Uh, we can show you, you know, beautiful earth floors and loads of different ways you can use clay in your building. Hopefully you can be inspired. Maybe you'll just see a very, very tired, slightly broken man. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, do please leave us a review or subscribe if you're using iTunes. Uh, comments always welcomed with open arms um we've had a couple so far just uh that have all been really positive and so thank you for those um yeah and definitely a shout out for anyone who you think is an interesting guest that might be be suitable for our our podcast <sighs> that is genuinely it i'm going to bed i'm exhausted <laughs> and all i've got to do is get up tomorrow and go and meet a hundred thousand people and explain what i've done hopefully you're one of those um and i look forward to meeting you all right all the best see you bye planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.